Hello and welcome to this podcast on Basel IV, Global Banking Regulations. I'm Johan Tukne, very, very happy to be joined partially here in reality and partially virtually by Victor Sonnebeck and Kaisa Andersson, who have helped me write this Nordea On Your Mind report that this conversation will be based on. Banking regulations, it's um, maybe not the topic of choice spontaneously by the coffee machine or at home. Um, something I think most of us have heard something about. I'm just thinking before we started educating ourselves on this topic a bit. I don't know, Kaisa, did you have any thoughts when you heard Basel IV or banking regulations? What would you feel when you heard about that? Thank you so much for having me, Johan. I also want to highlight that my brilliant colleague Johanna Rodemar has also been co-writing this report with us. When I first heard of banking regulations, I was in university studying for the risk management course we had. And I remember the many hours that I put in trying to figure out value at risk calculations for market risk, for example. So basically, I think of many hours at university trying to figure out these regulations. A little bit of trauma coming back. Sorry for that. And you, Victor, have you been thinking through the days about banking regulations or Basel? Uh, yeah, I have. I mean, first of all, I'm happy to be back with uh, with another Noim uh, podcast. Uh, and I think I have to just uh, simply echo what uh, Kaisa said about, uh, you know, sitting there uh, hunched over some, some books, reading about value at risk models and, and uh, the, the Basel regulations. So, so I've, I've uh, read about it. I've, I've written a bit about it before, uh, but not on a level that I would say that I would that I was particularly familiar with it uh, before we started digging deeper into it uh, for, for this uh, report. So so coming in with uh, coming into it with a kind of a kind of a fresh pair of eyes. And and I'm both happy and grateful that the two of you had the knowledge of it that you did when we took on the task of looking at this for an Odi on your mind report. Um it it may seem like an odd choice uh, as a topic for an Odi on your mind, but at the same time there are pretty compelling reasons for why we wanted to explore it and write about it. And in the report, we wanted to really help readers understand what it is, why it's coming, and, and, and how it's going to affect not only the banks, but, but also the banks lending to corporates, since we usually take the corporate perspective in, in our reports that we write. But I think we probably need to understand a few things on a basic level to get to terms with what Basel IV is all about. And, and, and banking is, of course, a heavily regulated industry. But if, if we just take a sort of basic think about it, uh, Kaisa, if, if I ask you, why would banks need to be regulated? How, how, how would you describe that? Well, banks are mission critical for the economy and for the functioning of a modern society. Going back to the core of banking, people keep their money in banks and receive a small amount of interest. Then the bank takes this money and lends it out to a much higher interest. This carries some risk, of course, since some of the lenders will not fulfill its obligations. So, banks provide resources for people to buy homes and other expensive things which they would otherwise need years and years of saving before being able to buy. And they also provide funding for industries to expand their business and grow. They are a vital part of the payment system and therefore needs to enjoy a high level of trust. Much of what we do in the economy requires the services provided by banks, and they are crucial for GDP. So, Joanne, to answer your question, banks need to be regulated to ensure that they have enough capital in place so that potential losses can be absorbed in times of financial distress. Nice to know that we are part of providing a critical function. Um, So, so much for why banks are regulated, but then how do you regulate banks? 
Victor, if, if I ask you about how to do it, how would you describe that? I think, again, just trying to keep it a, keep it a bit simple. Uh, you could divide it into a global, a regional, and, and then a national level. Um, so if, if we start with the, the Basel framework it, uh, itself, um, on a global level, you have the organization, uh, the Bank for International Settlements, the BIS, uh, from which the, the Basel framework uh, stems. And this is a corporation of, of uh, central banks uh, around the world, including uh, the vast majority of, of GDP uh, from nations around the world. So, so, so most larger uh, and smaller uh, economies in, in this group. And then you have on the on the more regional level, so say Europe, for example, uh, you have, for example, the European Banking Authority. And on a regional level, um, the uh, uh, the kind of task is is to drive harmonization of of national regulations, so to act as a, as a forum and to be able to coordinate between countries within the region. And then if we step down to the national level, so, so for example, Sweden or, or Finland or Denmark or Norway, uh, you have the respective uh, uh, F- FSAs. So, for example, in Sweden, Finansinspektionet or, or Finanstilsynet in Norway and Denmark. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to avoid pronouncing the, the name of the Finnish FSA for the sake of our listeners. Um, yeah, so, so this is kind of the, the high level and the basics. And, and I know just to kind of frame this thing and give some, some, some context, I know that you, Yuan, you're a, you're a keen student of history uh, and, and perhaps most of all military history. And uh, one might wonder what does that have to do with, with the Basel regulations? But that's, uh, that's part of where it all started, right? With the Bank for International Settlements. And, and you're so right, Victor, that when we all started educating ourselves a bit and read up on what this was all about, especially when it comes to the regulator on the global level, uh, this is where I started getting excited. Um, and, and I will, of course, pinch myself now that I mentioned what it was all about and how it came to be what it is uh, to avoid going into lecturing mode. But as you say, the Bank of International Settlements was formed back in 1930, originally actually with the mission to facilitate Germany's war reparations payments after having lost the First World War. So it kept paying these reparations to the Allies. But those payments actually ceased pretty soon after the Bank for International Settlements was formed. So instead, it fairly quickly transformed into what you could call the Bank for Central Banks. And that has continued to expand. And today, the BIS is owned by its 63 member central banks. They're members of BIS and also shareholders of BIS. And those more or less represent the entire world economy. These 63 nations, whose central banks are owners of the BIS... Uh, account for more than 95% of global GDP. And and as is so often the case, the reason that the Bank for National Settlements got involved in global bank regulations and and, and set the tone for global banking regulation was really a a coincidence. Uh, There was a a mid-sized German bank called Herstatt Bank, which blew up and went bankrupt in 1974. This was at the time of the end of the Bretton Woods system for fixed exchange rates. At that time, there was massive volatility in the US dollar, and Herstatt Bank was a big player in the FX markets. And its bankruptcy, actually because of a time difference between Germany and the US, led to the interbank market in New York freezing during the day US time after the bankruptcy of of Herstatt Bank uh, happened. 
And that made it very evident that there were pretty severe systemic risks involved in banks having become pretty internationalized and, and also capital markets having become internationalized. And this made apparent the need to review how the global banking system needed to be secured. And from the blow-up of Herstatt Bank, um, the uh, formation of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision took place in the same year. And from that point, it took them another 14 years to have that committee come up with the first global regulatory banking framework, what we know today as Basel I. But that's not the only framework we have seen from the Basel Committee. Kaiser, there have been quite a few over the years, right? Can you just remind us which we have seen, apart from this Basel I back in 1988? So in 2004, the committee introduced the Basel II framework, which was an expansion of standardized rules in Basel I, such as the possibility for banks to use internal risk models. Then, triggered by the financial crisis, the committee introduced in 2009 the Basel III framework. It was four new perspectives to risk measurements. First, it was an increase in the minimum capital ratio by 2.5% compared to Basel II. A counter-cynical buffer, which varies between countries, was added, as well as a leverage ratio requirement and additional liquidity requirements. And then, changes to the global capital requirements were agreed upon in 2017. It is referred to the finalization of Basel III. It is so comprehensive that it's seen as an entirely new framework, commonly referred to Basel IV, and is to be implemented in 2003. So, so you have a, a lot of different versions of, uh, of the Basel framework. Uh, and as you, you described there briefly, Kaiser, they, they all include different things that have been reactive to how the financial markets have been been. Um, been faring and, and and what has happened in financial markets and I guess the purpose has been to to ensure that the banks can survive shocks for example um, but in these frameworks of course you have a lot of, of uh, nuances and, and you have a lot of different different parts in them uh, and and one thing you mentioned is the the, the capital ratios uh, and I, I'm gonna gonna pass it over to you. There, you want to kind of dig a bit deeper into this. What, what does this actually mean when we talk about capital ratios? Good and relevant question. And I'm just gonna take a deep breath and try and help the listeners to get a grip to a degree on what these key ratios are that the regulators look at that they have chosen to use to, as you described, Kaisa, keep us banks alive and and still functioning and performing what we need to do in society for GDP to still be there and to grow, hopefully. Um, one of these concepts uh, that the regulators look at is risk-weighted assets. What are risk-weighted assets? They are a bank's lending, the loans to the bank's customers, but adjusted for risks, such as the probability of a default by a borrower, or, and also the loss given a default, if it were to happen. So higher risk in lending means that you have higher risk-weighted assets, and the higher risk-weighted asset uh, a bank has the more equity capital reserves a bank needs to hold because the greater the losses the bank could suffer if the customers have problems servicing the debt or or repaying those loans. The capital that the the bank needs to hold in reserve is really various forms of equity. And the minimum reserve capital that a bank needs to hold in the Basel regulatory framework is 10.5% of risk-weighted assets. 
plus, as Kaisa mentioned, uh, an, an additional component, uh, which is a counter-cyclical buffer. And that can be anywhere between zero and an additional 2.5 percentage points, depending on what that national regulator has decided. So it varies from country to country. But in addition to that reserve capital requirement, a minimum of 10.5% 10, 10 of uh, equity capital as a percentage of risk-weighted assets, banks also have a leverage ratio requirement. And that requires the bank's tier one equity capital to be at least 3% of the bank's total exposure. And what is a bank's total exposure? Well, that is the equity plus the debt plus the off-balance sheet liabilities, such as, for example, derivatives exposures. So the leverage ratio applies in addition to the minimum capital percentage that a bank needs to comply with at all times. So, so those are the kind of highlight criteria, like, uh, I guess you could call them. But since, since our report, uh, of course, we have some, some history in it because we want to frame what is actually Basel and, and what does it do. Uh, but it is mainly about uh, Basel IV. And I, and I guess a natural kind of starting point in discussing Basel IV would be to ask uh, what was wrong with Basel III? Why is there a need for, for this, uh, this new framework that, that we call uh, Basel IV? The Basel Committee's own empirical analysis highlighted a worrying degree of variability in banks' calculations of risk-weighted assets. So the new revisions are intended to restore credibility in calculations of risk-weighted assets by making standard approaches more robust, risk-sensitive for credit and operational risk, as well as constraining banks' internal risk models. An output floor and a revised leverage ratio is complementing the risk-based framework. So the purpose is mainly to harmonize risk-weighted asset calculations globally. So what are the key changes in Basel IV compared with Basel III? What's actually new? And I guess you could start with uh, with saying that there are a lot of revisions uh, of existing frameworks. So there aren't that many you know, completely new areas of regulation. But, but what has happened more is that that existing frameworks for measuring, for example, credit risks have either been uh, redefined, so some changes in the models themselves, um, or uh, you've had um, uh, a change in what models are allowed uh, or, that, or, or what models that banks uh, can, can use. And trying to be a bit more concrete, uh, if we look at, for example, credit risk. So how do banks measure? credit risk for its lending activities to, for example, large corporates. Uh, and the way in which you can, can do this, uh, of course, you can do this in, in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, just looking at it purely mathematical, you can do it in, a, in an endless number of ways. Uh, but in the Basel framework, uh, in, in the Basel 3 framework, and up until Basel 4, um, you, could, you could simply divide it into the use of advanced internal risk models, where the banks themselves have significant freedom in how they calculate the actual risk in their lending. So how they calculate the credit risk. It's, it's not completely up to the banks themselves, but to a large extent it is. And then you have uh, other models called, called the foundation uh, internal risk-based uh, risk uh, uh, models. Uh, and in these models, you still have a large degree of freedom in how you estimate parameters in the risk modeling. For example, you mentioned you wanted the probability of default or the expected loss given default. Um, and then you have something called the, the standardized approach. And the standardized approach is, 
is a is an approach for risk modeling that that is uh, kind of dictated by the regulator themselves. So what is new here is that the advanced internal uh, risk modeling, uh, these models that give the banks, uh, the, you could say, the largest degree of freedom themselves to to estimate their credit risk, um, these have been removed uh, for for large corporates. I think the definition is for large corporates with a with a turnover of uh, at least 500 million euros. So what this means in essence is that uh, you can no longer use these uh, typically more sophisticated, uh, more complicated internal risk models to to uh, actually calculate uh, the risk of your credit exposure. Uh, and on top of this, uh, you have you have something called the output floor. And putting it simply, the output floor is a limitation of the benefits you can get from using these internal risk models. So in other words, what the output floor does is that it limits how much you can optimize your capital reserves, pretty much. Uh, because if you use internal models, you could, could calculate the risk for an exposure uh, and get a much lower risk, for example, than what the standardized approach given by the regulator uh, determines the risk level to be. And what this output floor does is that it states that your own internal measurement of this exposure cannot give you more than 72.5% of the standardized approach. So at a maximum, you can reduce your, your risk-weighted uh, assets by 27.5%. Uh, so this, uh, this is a major change. And of course, uh, th this, uh, this uh, will affect uh, banks that are using internal models uh, the most because it has to do with how much of a benefit you can receive from these internal models. And then we have uh, another change in the framework, which is uh, a revised leverage ratio. And you mentioned, you want that this leverage ratio has to do with having to hold capital reserves at a ratio of something called total expo exposure. And this total exposure, uh, you could simplify it a bit and say that this is the, the kind of exposure you have that isn't, uh, isn't calculated in, in your risk assessment. So, so the things that you don't catch, if you will, when you do your credit, uh, credit risk assessment. Uh, and what, what has been done here is to, to, to simply change the definition of this total exposure, what it means. Uh, and we won't dig too much deeper into that. In addition, you have a revised CVA uh, framework. Uh, and again, as we'll talk a, a bit more about later, uh, this doesn't affect the capital ratios for banks all that much. But in essence, what it means is to, to kind of make the assessment of risk in CVA uh, a bit better, you, you could simply put it. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, you have a, a revision of the operational risk framework. So operational risk has to do with, with uh, risks associated to, for example, workplace accidents or fraud or, or I guess IT incidents could be one as well. Um, and in this new framework, uh, instead of banks being able to themselves uh, calculate uh, their operational risks to a high degree of freedom, um, there has been an introduction of an of an uh, or or of a standardized approach, you could say. Again, trying to to harmonize the way in which different banks, regionally, globally, harmonizing the way in which they calculate uh, their their operational risk. And in essence, uh, this new framework is based on uh, your level of income and your historical pattern, uh, pattern of uh, operational uh, risk uh, losses.
So as Kaiser described, an, an, an ambition on the part of the regulator to try and harmonize the way banks measure and calculate these risks and exposures. But if you exactly. were to put it very simply, Victor, uh, for, for any listener like me to be able to, to grasp it, how would you say this is likely to affect the banks? Because these are pretty substantial changes. There are a lot of substantial changes. And the framework itself, I mean, it is a complex beast to to try to understand. But but when you get down to it, one of the kind of key aspects going into it from the regulator's point of view is that they don't want to to they don't want to create a shock in the banking industry on a global level so so their ambition has never been to you know increase the level of capital in banks on a global level but what has happened is that you you have you know regional differences because different banks uh, have have different circumstances in which they operate. Uh, and as I mentioned before, for example, different banks use internal models to a different extent. So one of the, the, the kind of key things for the regulator has been this harmonization of how banks calculate risks. Uh, and if we take credit risk, for example, uh, what we call the, the risk-weighted assets uh, in the credit exposure, removing the use of of uh, of uh, advanced internal models so decreasing the level of freedom that banks have themselves to estimate their own credit risks what you essentially are doing is harmonizing the way in which banks assess their risks so you're creating kind of a level playing field if you will in that banks will increasingly estimate risk uh, the same way and in addition to this, uh, I mentioned the, the output floor. That also helps with this kind of harmonization because if a bank is limited in how much they can actually benefit from, for example, internal models, uh, then of course this will reduce the variability uh, across banks uh, globally. Okay, so just putting putting numbers on it, I, I think on a global level it's, it's quite limited in terms of how much more capital banks will need. But if we split it up and, and look at differences between, uh, between uh, regions, uh, we see that it actually entails a pretty large difference in terms of, of uh, capital needs for for the European banking system and the Nordic banking banking system in particular. So the European banking system studies show that they will actually need an additional 19% more tier one capital in their capital uh, capital buffer. Uh, whereas the US banks uh, aggregated uh, will need about 2%. And if we look at the extremes in, in, the, in, in the European region, uh, we can take Sweden, for example. Uh, and Sweden is estimated to need, or, or the Swedish banks are estimated to need uh, 28% more uh, tier one capital fr- from this new framework. Then. And what, what's happening here is that, uh, you know, one of the key, key missions is to ensure the banking system. So, so to make sure that the banking system is stable. And doing this is, uh, or, or one way of doing this is to ensure that the globally you know, most important banks, so system-critical banks, are the safest. That's kind of the the the, uh, the reasoning behind this. So, large banks and the systemically important banks will see the the most impact from this, almost the entire impact, uh, actually. Whereas the smaller banks won't really be that affected. And when it comes to to where the the impact from the the new framework stems from. Uh, it pretty much boils down to uh, changes in cre- uh, credit risk modeling. 
So from all the different things that we mentioned so far, uh, the changes in credit, uh, credit risk modeling, so the introduction of, of the output floor, uh, and also the limitation of internal models, uh, that corresponds to about two-thirds uh, of the total impact. We take the corporate perspective in the latest Nordea on Your Mind report. How will the impact on banks affect lending to corporates? It's an excellent question, Kaisa, and we, we indeed try to take the corporate perspective in, in, in every thematic report that we write. Um, and, and there is a very important dimension from that here, in that if the European banking system is going to see this increase in need for tier one capital that it needs to hold, it means that it's going to have to find an additional 52 billion euros of capital, looking at the sort of lending volumes that it starts with today. That's a lot of money. Uh, and to, to try and, and, and have a view on what the likely impact is going to be for corporate borrowers, I think it's important to start with just looking at, historically, what has happened to return on capital for the banks. And, and, and if we look at the return on equity in the banking sector, we can see, if we simplify a bit, that there's a very, very clear before and after Prior to the global financial crisis of 2008 to 2009, uh, the banking sector had, roughly speaking, a return on equity around 15%. And a few years later, after the global financial crisis, and looking at all the time since then, the average level established as the new normal is around 10%. So, so one-third of the return on capital that the banks were able to generate prior to the crisis has gone away. And then the important question, of course, becomes, okay, so if there is now a very substantial additional capital need for the European banks, are they going to simply suck it up and say, okay, so we're going to have to accept further reductions in the return on capital that we can generate? Or is there perhaps at this point, given that decline in returns that the banks in Europe have seen, like banks have globally, a perceived need to get the cost of all that additional capital that will be needed under Basel IV compensated and passed on to customers of the banks. Nobody knows. We can't say for sure how this is going to play out, but there are others out there who have done studies. There is one study, for example, by Copenhagen Economics who have looked closely at the Nordic region, and they've taken Sweden as a specific example to try and simulate how this is going to play out. And according to that study, uh, in the EU, they expect that borrowing costs for corporates are going to go up by about 25 basis points on the back of the additional capital needs from Basel IV. And in the case of Sweden, and Victor already alluded to that, that Sweden is among the countries in Europe, like, for example, also the Nordic region, uh, most affected by these changes, because Nordic banks tend to be quite heavy users of internal risk models. Uh, the increase in, in corporate borrowing costs is likely to be twice as high uh, as for Europe in Sweden. So, so over 50 basis points rather than the 25 for Europe, according to that study. And, and no matter if we think that it's going to be 20 or 30 basis points of increased costs or, or no increased costs at all, it is also important from a corporate perspective to be aware that of all different types of corporates, that category of corporate borrower using bank loans for its fundings today that will be by far most affected by the changes coming from Basel IV will be the large corporates, so the ones who have revenues of more than 500 million euros, but who also do not have a credit rating. So if you happen to be in the category that you're large and you don't have a credit rating, well, then you are in that particular space where the changes from Basel IV are going to be felt the most. So from our point of view, if you're that kind of corporate, it's good to be aware and to try and prepare for what lies ahead 
so that you can uh, consider your options. Uh, and as you mentioned, you on one of the key changes is that the, the importance of an external credit rating for these large corporates grows with this new new framework. So if you're an unrated corporate, an unrated large corporate, you would simply put, be, be kind of grouped into a higher risk level, regardless of your actual uh, credit risk history. So, so in essence, having an external credit rating grows in importance. And uh, I guess the, the, the kind of simple question here to try to, to sum this up and try to also leave the kind of regulation heavy and how it affects banks, leave that aspect a bit behind us. Um, what can corporates do to prepare for this? And, and, and what will be the, you know, the, the main changes, the main issues, the main, main challenges going forward? And the most obvious things that corporates can do, of course, is to be aware of what's coming and to educate themselves on what will likely happen because of the changes that are coming that we, that we are aware of. Um, and having that knowledge, we think that what makes sense for corporate borrowers, users of bank loans, is to simply review the various funding options available to them or potential new funding options which they are not yet using but might be able to use in the future. Just to make sure that they have the information, that they have what they need to have in order to have a maximum flexibility for being able to choose between different funding options to to find what suits them best, not only today, but also in a few years' time when Basel IV is being implemented and all these consequences will materialise and we will see for sure in reality what the outcome is. And one specific thing, just to mention something very concrete, is as we've already mentioned, credit ratings. Um, it, it, it's, it's already something we, re- we wrote in the Unimind report earlier, the case for a credit rating, where we also quantitatively analysed what do companies financially get out of having a rating in terms of how much impact it has on their funding costs. But under Basel IV, that becomes arguably, at least for certain types of corporates, even more relevant because it can potentially make an even bigger difference if the playing field for bank borrowing is going to be so different under Basel IV. So just, again, to have a look at a rating, is that something that makes sense for us? How big a difference might it make? What's the value to us from having that under Basel IV? And with any of these considerations, don't hesitate to talk to your advisors at Nordea. Uh, I mean, we are looking at this as well. We're trying to understand how it's going to play out, and we want to be there for our clients, of course, to, to, to help with our views and advice in how to best position themselves for what lies ahead. So, this has been fun, as always. My apologies to, to, to both of you, Kaisa and Victor, for uh, re- reawakening that trauma from your student days, uh, <laughs> from getting reacquainted with regulations. But it's been useful, I think, for all of us. Hopefully, you listeners have picked up something in what we have described, which lets you understand a bit about what's coming and what's going on. Uh, we certainly feel good knowing what we can know today about what lies ahead. Uh, for our next podcast, uh, that will have a sustainability theme. Our next Nodiana Mind report is planned to be about ESG and the cost of capital and to what degree corporates may actually get rewarded in having a better cost of capital from being good at sustainability. So uh, we look forward to having a new conversation and sharing the findings there with you. See you next time. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.